You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Team, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what is top of mind for the C-suite and other security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and today we are talking about supply chain and public-private partnership. Today, I'm joined by Michael Rogers, who was one of the highest ranking intelligent officials in the US government until he stepped down last spring from dual duty as head of US Cyber Command and the National Security Agency after a 37 year career. Under his four year tenure as chief, Rogers helped elevate Cyber Command to the status of combatant command, one of only 10 such senior most operational units in the Defense Department and the first in more than 25 years to achieve that designation. At NSA, he helped restructure and realign the agency to meet rapidly evolving 21st century challenges. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Team, Mike. Thanks very much, Ed, and I feel cheated. I don't have any tea with me. That, that's, that's just not right. It's a requirement for the show. We'll have to we'll have to resolve that. You know, we'll have to start shipping people tea, I think, exactly. just to make sure you have it. So we're going to talk about supply chain, which given when we're recording this, it's timely, right? There have been events such as SolarWinds and the Colonial Pipeline and even very recently the JBS meat processing incident. And they are a sobering reminder that the U.S. public sector and the private sector are increasing, facing just really sophisticated malicious cyber activity from cyber criminals and from nation state actors. There's some commonalities in these incidents, um, you know, including insufficient cybersecurity defenses, but also just a lack of really cohesive and, and structured partnership between private companies and private public sector. We saw recently an executive order that was signed by President Biden that's working to improve the nation's cybersecurity and protect federal government network by removing barriers to threat information sharing between government and also the private sector. And there's, of course, other directives included modernizing, implementing stronger cybersecurity standards within the federal government itself and the call for zero trust. I just want to have a conversation around it. I want to talk a little bit about the government posture, but also what we could be doing more from a public-private sector um, cooperation standpoint point and some of the thoughts in the executive order. But before I start, any overall comments? Well, you know, first thing that, I, that I'm that i struck by is we need to think about supply chains much more broadly. I mean, traditionally, and I say this, you know, when I was part of the senior leadership with respect to cyber policy and the government, we tended to think of supply chain as something physical. We tended to think about supply chain as parts or components that were brought together to create something bigger or different. We never thought about software so much, for example, when we came to supply chain. I mean, I, so the first thing that always strikes me is organizations, I don't care if you're in the government or you're in the private sector, we need to think about supply chains much more broadly. There's both a hardware and a software component. I don't think more, most organizations spend any time thinking about who's providing your software, where is it written, how is it updated? I mean, Solar Winds is a great example. You know, the whole supply chain scenario tries to build on that weakness that, hey, if I can get in the ecosystem and I'm viewed as a legitimate upgrade, so to speak, the, the system will let me go wherever I need to, wherever I want to in many ways. 
you know, it, it occurs to me also during all this, and I was talking to some folks right right around Colonial Pipeline, um, to start with all of my family members for the first time ever have suddenly taken an interest in what I do for a living, so it's kind of funny. They're all calling and saying, can't you stop this stuff? Um, so as I talk about the complexities, but one of the things that really occurred to me was the, the fragility of our supply chain, right? If you even think about the coronavirus and, and the supply chain related to semiconductors, take it through, you know, solar winds and the exploitation of tech supply chains to try to attack the government. And then think about a colonial, you know, attack where, you know, four days without pumping gas led to severe gasoline shortages in some parts of the country. Um, and now we have a, an attack on a, on a meat processing plant that's going to lead to shortages of, you know, meat in parts of the U.S. and parts of the world, by the way. Yeah, so, I think that that yeah. shows you that there's a, there's a higher degree of fragility. There are much more single points of failure or single points of massive failure than we probably truly understand because we just never viewed supply chain infrastructure as potential components that could be threatened or interdicted. We just always assumed it was a broader common good that was always there. I mean, the fact that one company controls you know, approximately 45% of the fuel distribution for the most densely populated segment of our nation, you know, the East Coast. And the fact that the government had nothing to do with the ultimate decision made to shut down fuel distribution, I, I just find that, wow. I do find it shocking. And, the, and it took an emergency order to actually move the fuel. And you have to understand, I grew up, by the way, in a trucking family. I actually yeah. understand logistics and trucking quite well. It was the family business. Um, the question becomes, and I'm not I'm not here to advocate politically for anything, including regulation, but the question becomes, how do we, uh, you know, the word regulation is such an, a naughty word to people, but how do we build the resilience, I would say, in our infrastructure and also still allow free market economies to run, right? I think that we have to recognize that food supplies, gasoline supplies, et cetera, are critical infrastructure, just like, you know, water and electricity, right? Yes. And I don't think we've thought about them that way. To that point, I think we need to take a risk-based approach. Look, not all capacity, not all infrastructure represents the same level of risk or impact to our nation were it, you know, slowed or halted. So I always thought, look, the answer here is we need to make a risk-based assessment as to what infrastructure, and I would argue you use the same methodology on the supply chain side, because a one-size-fits-all approach is not going to work in an economy of this size and a population of this size. I'm going, guys, you, you just can't do that. On the other hand, fuel distribution, fuel. I mean, you know, the argument in the government we always use for critical infrastructure was if it was related, if, it had, if the disruption or, um, you know, total stoppage were it to be stopped or disrupted, if it was going to make significant impacts on health and well-being of our citizens, our national security, or our ability to compete economically or have significant economic peace, then we said, okay, we, that's an area we really need to focus on. If it didn't really meet those three criteria broadly, then we argued, hey, we could take a different risk approach. Maybe the government's role shouldn't be the same as some of those other areas. So I'm hoping, you know, we're, the government's talking about spending significant amounts of money on infrastructure. As they do that, I just hope we have got to make sure we're building cybersecurity into that as a core element. And secondly, as we're designing and building this infrastructure, making sure we understand, so where are the single points of failure? Where are the single points of massive impact? How can we create more redundancy? How can we create more resiliency? How can we work around those? How can we minimize them? 
I hope those are all part of the criteria that we're going to use as we're thinking. So how should we apply these new resources in increasing our infrastructure and restoring, you know, overcoming some of the age of some of it? Exactly. And so when you think about that, can we talk a little bit about that partnership between the government and private sector and how we get better alignment, how we even get better intelligence sharing um, so that we can think about how we protect the supply chain and that broader definition of supply right. chain? So number one, I, and no disrespect to anybody, because look, we are lucky to have hardworking men and women, both in the private sector and the government, really focus on the cybersecurity challenges. And I'm very, you know, I was part of the government team. I've seen firsthand both in the private sector and in the public sector, how hardworking and how motivated so many of these men and women are. Um, number one to me is this collaboration model just drives me up the wall. Because my attitude always was, Collaboration seems to be you do your thing, I'll do my thing. And if we either one of us sees something that's of interest or concern, as I have the time and as I have the inclination, I'll let you know. And I just thought to myself, what that has driven us to is a reactive model where we are all about responding after an event has occurred. And that is a losing strategy for us. And it's a bad place for us to be. It leads to a very resource intensive approach to cybersecurity. It's amazing to me. I'll often hear, well, we don't have the resources to do that. And I think to myself, well, it, when it goes wrong, it's amazing how we suddenly come up with resources to fix these problems. So if we can invest a little bit more up front, perhaps we get a better return in the long run. So I'm interested in not just collaboration. I'm interested in, guys, how do we integrate 24-7 to actually work together? Now, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all approach. Hey, I don't want the government involved in you know, learning about some businesses, it's not appropriate. We don't need to, resources are finite. On the other thing, colonial, the colonial pipeline challenge, and even what we're seeing with JBS, look, if we're talking about fuel disruption, food disruption, guys, we need a model where we've got a much tighter integrated approach between the government and the private sector in some areas. And those are two examples to me where a different model makes more sense. So the reason companies cite to me that they don't share with the government is they're afraid of either a leak, so reputational damage, right? Or a punitive, you know, something punitive happening to them. How can the government help create the confidence with the private sector that they can share, even disclosure, maybe just to the government of a breach long before it ever goes public, without that worry of both a leak or some type of punitive event happening? I always say, look, rather than try to create something totally new, where do we have models where this kind of integration, this kind of collaboration is actually working, where businesses feel comfortable sharing intellectual property? The one that comes to mind to me is aviation manufacturing. Look, the government has inspectors on the floor in the Boeing plants around the United States, whether they be in Washington or South Carolina, for example, for the Dreamliner. The government has access to the blueprints and the production design for the hardware and the software associated with every major airliner, for example. And I've never heard Boeing say, you know, I'd love to share with you what we're gonna do, uh, you know, with the 737 MAX or fill in the blank, but that's intellectual property advantage for us. And we're really concerned that if we share that with the government, it's gonna be compromised. So there are some models where I say to myself, we've shown that we can do this. Again, it's another reason why I would argue we need to be very focused. We need to be risk-based. And I would argue start out small. Let's pick a few, you know, one or two industries where the risk is really high, where the implications of loss or disruption are really significant. 
And let's see if we can try some things that then, assuming that we show that they work, we can replicate and expand on. But don't start with a one-size-fits-all. Hey, I'm here from the government, and I'm going to mandate one standard for every industry out there. I'm like, guys, that is not going to work. And it won't generate confidence, I don't think. And I love that approach, right? It's not one size is all and again, it's risk-based, which you know leads me to the question of a mandatory disclosure act. I mean, l- let's say that happens. Who's going to enforce it? How do you penalize? I and I'll I'll talk about you know when HIPAA and I, I'm going to go back w- way back mm-hmm. when HIPAA first came out. I was I was um, talking to healthcare organizations. That's what I focused on, by the way. Uh, was healthcare infrastructure, and I remember them saying like, "Well, we have to be complying on all this, and Jayco is going to come audit us, and there's going to be fines." But no one gave us any money to do anything. No one gave us any money to roll out. Like two-factor authentication was one of the first things that HIPAA had to do technologically, right. right? So how do you think about mandatory disclosure acts? How do you enforce them? How do you incent them, right? So again, to me, there's some interest. Take aviation safety. We decided that the potential loss of an airliner with hundreds of people represents such significant risk that we're going to use a very different model. And part of that model is Guess what? Anytime, anywhere in the world, there is an aviation accident, private aviation, whether it's a large airliner or, you know, small aircraft, guess what? There is a federally mandated requirement. You must notify aviation authorities. You must share all the data associated with the accident itself, the aircraft, the people involved, flight data recordings, etc. And we have mechanisms so if you fail to comply there are mechanisms to fine you then the other thing i like about the aviation safety model is not only do we exhaustively examine and determine the causes for every major accident look what we do after that we mandate changes in maintenance manufacturing training there's a reason why while we still have aviation accidents We don't have as many. And the other thing that is really significant to me, they tend not to reoccur the same way over and over and over again. Compare that with cybersecurity. We have the same pattern of incidents in cyber over and over and over again. Why? Because we don't really investigate. We don't broadly share. We don't force changes based on incidents. So they just keep reoccurring. And and last thought on this, What I used to say when I was part of the government team was, look, I want the pain of the one to lead to the benefit of the many. And all I'm watching is the pain of the one just keeps leading to the pain of another, the pain of another, the pain of another. Guys, this is not a good model for us. But I do think there are some examples out there where we've shown you can give companies liability protection, for example. Hey, look, if a major accident, United or fill in the blank airline, you're going to give us all the data we want. And we give you some measure of liability protection. The manufacturer of the airframe, the union that for the pilots and the crew, for example, there are mechanisms we put in place to provide a measure of liability protection, which I think are very appropriate. We can't just sit here as the government and say, you can't do this, you can't do that, you have to do this, you have to do that. I think part of this has to be, and the government says, here's how I can help you. Here's how I can also address your concerns like liability, like intellectual property protection. You know, like, hey, I can deploy capacity in some areas to actually try to to work with you and, and assist you. 
Yeah, and I'll take you back. I'm, we're going to go the way in the way back machine um, for a minute, and then I want to use your transportation analogy. So we're going to go back to I went to college in um, Northern Utah, beautiful Weber State University. Well, one of the major employers in that area was Morton Thiokol. What yeah. are they famous for? They made over solid rocket boosters. What do those rings do? They failed, and Morton Thiokol pretty much ceased to be a really you know big organization because of that investigation. So if companies feel that that's what's going to happen to them, they will hide things, right? And I think that's the point we're trying to make. So the way to make sure you can't hide it is look at Morton Thiokol as an example. Guess what? We are going to do an investigation of this and you can't hide it. Now, in some cases, look, when you have a spectacular failure, aka Challenger in January of 1986, that's one thing. Unfortunately, cyber activity happens so often, some companies are able to hide this because people just don't know about it and it just gets lost in the noise. And I think we need to change that approach. I do too. And I think we need to recognize that cyber failures are ultimately going to, you know, and I'm not an alarmist, by the way, I wake up every morning, this industry optimistic, but mm -hmm. there is a human life aspect. You know, healthcare is, is a good way to talk about that. There is a real human life aspect if we don't get cyber under control, which takes us to your transportation analogy. A lot of people have talked about the cyber review board that the executive order calls for is you know, equivalent to the National Transportation Safety Board, right? Um, so how do you think about that? And who staffs it? Who oversees it? How do they report out? I mean, how do you think about that board? Right. So the devil's in the details, clearly. You know, my view is the NTSB is a really powerful model, and I would try to replicate it to the maximum extent that I could. Um, it's not a huge organization. The NTSB doesn't number the tens of thousands of people. It's very focused on a particular mission set you know, understanding why accidents happen, being able to determine causality, and then in turn being able to, and it does it by partnering with others. It partners with aircraft manufacturers. It partners with airlines. It partners with unions. I mean, it, it doesn't do this all by itself. So the partnership piece, I think, is an important component on this, but I would really, and then remember, finally, it has legal authorities. Asking people to do this voluntarily, I just don't think is a high probability of success. You have to give them some level of authority. Even as you do that, we also, I think, want to ask ourselves, so how can we incentivize the private sector to view this as a positive that they want to cooperate with? I, I would argue one of the reasons the airline industry, the manufacturers, et cetera, why they want to cooperate is, look, they realize that brand reputation is directly linked to safety. And therefore, it is in their best interests, both reputationally and monetarily, to ensure that they are strong partners in trying to understand what goes wrong, why, and then working hard to make sure it doesn't happen again. I think we, we need to create the same kind of dynamic with respect to cybersecurity. Hey, it's in companies' best interests to do this. So we're running out of time. I have two last questions. One, we always try to end the show with some prescriptive guidance. If you were to tell companies or government entities, what are the couple things you would tell them to do today to secure themselves? Number one, make sure you truly understand your connectivity, where your data is, and what your supply chain looks like. I am still amazed by the number of organizations that don't truly have an accurate baseline of knowledge. The example I used to use was, again, when I was in the government with Cyber Command and NSA, at times we deployed capacity to help certain segments in private industry. And we also did that within the government. 
And in both scenarios, government and private sector, invariably, we would always tell whatever entity we we're working with, I guarantee you that what you tell me your system architecture is, is not going to be the reality that we're going to find. I just guarantee you. Because what we always found was, it's not that people are bad. It's not that they're not motivated. People want to work hard. They want to get the job done. And one of the ways they like to do that at times is they create bypasses and connectivity that enhances what they're doing, but in turn takes on risk for the organization that they don't understand and that the, the organization doesn't even know about. So that would be number one. Number two would be, it isn't just about technology. Never forget the human dynamic and all this. Again, I used to say this to our nation's leadership. Sir, you can't. You can write the biggest check in the world and it still won't be enough. We can't solve this by just throwing money at the problem. Put another way, we can have the greatest technology with the highest level of investment, but if we don't have a smart user community that makes smart choices, that's part of our strategy, it'll be totally un undermined every day by bad choices that our users are making. We yeah. gotta account for the human in all this and we gotta help make it easier for them. And we got to incentivize them to make smart choices. And we also got to provide them the means to make smart choices. No, that makes sense. Um, last question for you. You've been retired. <laughs> what are you three doing these today? days? As, as yeah, what are you doing these days? Three years today. So for me, look, I decided after 37 years in the Navy, number one, I love learning new things. So I said, hey, I want to see what I can do where I can keep learning. I can keep growing as a person. Number two, I said, you know, I love my time in the government, but one of the things I was struck by at times, often when I'd be sitting in the White House Situation Room, or <laughs> I would be thinking to myself, you know, you don't always get to choose the people you work with. That's just the way it is. And one of the things I said in my next life was, you know, I want to spend time on problem sets that I think are relevant. I want to work with organizations that have values that I believe in, and I want to work with people that I want to be around. And if we don't meet those three criteria, I don't care how much money there is involved, I got zero interest. So I do things I teach. I teach at Northwestern University in Chicago at the Kellogg School of Management. I am on several board of directors. I'm on multiple advisory boards. I work with a global consulting firm. I do some work with global law firm. I work with a couple of venture capital firms because I thought studying I don't know anything about money. I've been a government guy my whole life. Money and investment, I don't know anything about that. I understand teams, I understand people, I thought, and I was always comfortable with technology. I thought, hey, could I apply that but still learn something? So it's been a lot of fun. I really am invigorated by this next stage in life. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us, and many thanks to our audience for listening. Join us next time on Afternoon Cyber Team. So I invited uh, Admiral Rogers or Mike to join Afternoon Cyber Tea. I've actually known him for a while, and I just thought he has such a unique perspective on government and supply chain based on his time in Cyber Command and NSA, and also his career in the Navy um, as an admiral, that his perspective on the threats in our world landscape today and how nation states and cyber criminal gangs could really impact our supply chain and the frailty of the U.S. supply chain, I just thought it was an incredibly relevant conversation. And not just for the U.S., but the global supply chain. I thought it was important to get his perspective, and it was an incredibly dynamic and lively conversation. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, 
We're talking scumbots with Paul Melson. Believe me, you're going to want to hear this. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.